They travel in buses. They ride trucks. They follow the sun. That is legendary CBS News correspondent Edward R. Murrow. They are the migrants, workers in the sweatshops of the soil. His documentary was called Harvest of Shame. CBS aired it the day after Thanksgiving. Harvest of Shame came out in 1960. And this is Tennessee Watson. She's an education reporter at Wyoming Public Radio. We're going to talk with her on this episode of the podcast about the education that children of migrant workers got in the past and what's available to them today. And, you know, the big takeaway from this film, which aired across the country, was that while you're enjoying your Thanksgiving feast, the food that's on your table is harvested by people who can't even afford to buy that. We should like you to meet some of your fellow citizens who harvest the food for the best-fed nation on Earth. So he keeps trying to make this point that this level of poverty and exploitation is something that's happening right here in the United States. How old were you when you first started working in the fields? Eight. You've been working 21 years in the fields? That's right. Aileen, do you ever think you'll be able to get out of this kind of work? No, sir. You know, Murrow also spends a lot of time in the Harvest of Shame talking to parents about the lives of their children. Six decades after Harvest of Shame, Tennessee Watson set out to see what school is like for today's children of migrant workers. She found that those workers are still among the lowest paid people in the country. They still do really dangerous work, but their kids have a much better shot at not being migrant workers when they grow up. That's because of education. The migrant families that Edward R. Murrow talked with had little hope of getting an education. Today, many more migrant kids are going to school and even to college. From APM Reports, this is Educate, a podcast in collaboration with The Heckinger Report. I'm Stephen Smith. The Migrant Education Program gives local school districts federal money to keep migrant kids in school even as their families move around. The program's been going for 50 years, and it works, even though most people don't know about it. Tennessee Watson says migrant education got a boost because of the Great Society programs in the 1960s. We have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward to the Great Society. President Lyndon Johnson you know, had the Great Society program, and the idea, to sort of paraphrase Johnson, was that no child would go unfed and that no youngster would go unschooled and really had this vision of citizens having the means to lead full, meaningful lives. The Great Society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we're totally committed in our time. And so a part of that was declaring war on poverty and racial injustice. And one of the pathways to overcoming poverty and racial injustice was this focus on education. So we must give every child a place to sit and a teacher to learn from. Poverty must not be a bar to learning, and learning must offer an escape from poverty. And so as a part of that effort, the Great Society and the War on Poverty the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965 was passed. And a part of that was Title I, which was federal dollars specifically to support low-income students. You know, one of the most famous parts of Title I, I think that a lot of people across the United States know, is the free and reduced lunch program. So to make sure that low-income kids have access to food. 
And despite the attention that the Harvest of Shame had given to the plight of migrant students, migrant education wasn't included in the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965. And it's interesting because in Harvest of Shame, Murrow makes this point where he says, you know, the federal government spends more money on migrant birds than they do on migrant kids. The federal government spends six and a half million dollars annually protecting migratory wildlife. This year, Congress failed to appropriate three and a half million dollars to educate migratory children. Um, He tells us that there's only six states that even have programs for migrant kids. Approximately one out of every 500 children whose parents are still migrant laborers finishes grade school. Approximately one out of every 5,000 ever finishes high school. And there is no case upon the record of the child of a migrant laborer ever receiving a college diploma. So he makes a pretty compelling case for the need for more support and services for migrant students. And there was a congressman from Michigan named William Ford who sort of caught that gap. And he was from a state where there were a lot of migrant farm workers. And he was able to write legislation and get it passed that added migrant students to Title I in 1966. This was the migrant education program, is that right? Yep. Well, who qualified as a migrant student? So it's any child between the ages of three through 21, so up until they're 22, that doesn't have a high school diploma and whose parents uh, have moved to do seasonal, agricultural, or fisheries work. And students, say you're 16 and you're already moving on your own, but you don't have a high school diploma, then those students who are moving themselves for work are also eligible for support. And over time, it's come to include other kinds of migratory seasonal workers. So it includes folks who work in the timber industry, the fishing industry. It also extends to processing. So if you're not out harvesting cherries, but you're in the freezer packing them, then your kids would qualify. If you're not out fishing, but you're working in a canning facility, then your kids would also qualify. How does it work? Who um, is actually making contact with migrant students? Well, it can happen a number of different ways. So, you know, one line of connection is a kid moves to a new school and folks that work in that school are hip to the fact that there's a migrant education program. So for every new student that walks through the door, they would screen them and say, hey, in the last 36 months, have your parents done agricultural work or moved to get a job in agricultural work? Uh, So you can screen students as they come into school. Another possibility is there are recruiters that work for migrant education programs in different states who will know that farm workers are arriving um, at camps and go out and interact with parents and interact with children and, and get them signed up that way. And there's also this acknowledgement of the fact that kids aren't always going to come to school. And so there's this outreach effort in a lot of states to go out and recruit them. And that's become increasingly important um, with that demographic that I talked about, you know, the 16 or 17-year-old who still doesn't have a high school diploma but is moving for work potentially on their own. You know, that person's not going to show up at the door of the local high school, but a recruiter might be able to go out, find out how old folks are, ask them what their education history is, and then help get them hooked up with a GED program 
You also went to Maine to talk with a woman named Juana Vasquez, who works with kids that migrate uh, with the blueberry harvest and the fishing season there. Can you tell us a bit about what her work is like? Juana Vasquez is from a migrant farm worker family herself. She came to Maine in fourth grade, and that was the first time in her memory that she stopped moving. We started up in Florida and did oranges, and then every year we will move to uh, Michigan and do crops over there. We would do strawberries, tomatoes, green peppers. We would wait up until apples and finish apple season, and then we would go back to Florida. And then one year, um, one of my father's friends came up to Maine, and they were starting up um, sea cucumber factory here in Millbridge. And he went back down and told my father, oh, you should come. There's a lot of work over here. That's how we started. That's how we got here was for the sea cucumber factory. And then um, the sea cucumber factory would close, and my father would work uh, in the blueberry fields um, after that. So she does the coordination of the migrant education program in this one part of Down East Maine, which has a lot of different things going on. There's lobster processing. There's a big blueberry harvest that brings in thousands of workers. They make wreaths there. And it's, you know, there's enough work, uh, but it doesn't fill an entire year. So there are workers that are coming and going from that area. And it's really her job to, you know, manage the cases of these students and help to ease those transitions. So it's almost what, 7 o'clock at night and we're heading towards Harrington um, with a new family that just moved three days ago. Um, and we just enrolled her today in school. Um, so she would be starting school tomorrow morning at 7.30. Um, and we're gonna be dropping off some school supplies um, to get her ready for school tomorrow. I went with her to visit a student the night before she was going to start school in uh, Maine for the for the first time. And instead of just showing up at school the next morning and passing off some supplies to her there, she went out of her way on a cold, frosty Maine evening to go and meet Yoelis and, and her mom, Jennifer, just to kind of you know, ease her worries and talk her through what it's going to be like at that first day and to make sure that she had paper and pencils and that she knew where the bathroom was in the school. All these little details just to kind of like ease that transition for her. And I think that's because Juana remembers what it was like to show up at a new school. She's going to be going to school tomorrow. She needs to have that confidence that she's ready to be in school, um, that support that somebody is helping her, that, um, She's not alone, so just to... Well, she also is being really creative in how she's using migrant education funds. So she's taking kids on field trips to colleges, making sure that migrant students know they can go to college. She's doing career development, introducing them to professionals so that they, you know, can meet somebody who's doing something besides farm work. And then there's also a tutoring program. And then this more traditional sort of case management where she's looking at their grades and just kind of checking in with them about how they're doing. And then the other thing that she does is she is really this interface between workers and schools. And she's able to say to a school, hey, a ton of lobster just came in. Everybody's working 14-hour shifts. And there's parent-teacher conferences scheduled this week. There's no way that these parents who are processing lobster are going to be able to make those meetings. Can we come up with times that work with them? 
Now, you're based in Wyoming. How did you become first interested in this subject, the state of migrant education? Well, I became interested because I was reviewing my state's ESSA plan and just looking at, oh, what's going to change with every Student Succeeds Act? And I noticed that Wyoming said that they were no longer going to take the federal funds for the migrant education program. And I checked around and people said, you know, there have been less and less migrant farm workers, fewer and fewer migrant farm workers coming to Wyoming because of changes in technology. So they use the Roundup Ready beet, and the beet harvest was the main thing that drew workers to the state. Using the Roundup Ready beet requires a lot less weeding and tilling. So, you know, with the introduction of that new beet, fewer and fewer people came. And there was a decline in the number of migrant students. So the last count that they had was about 108 students, and they decided to phase out their program. And I looked at that and I was like, hmm, like there have been changes in agriculture across the country that have decreased the need for farm workers. And I was just curious, like, is this a thing that's happening in other states? And is it? No, it does not seem to be happening in other states. Um, I got uh, support from the Solutions Journalism Network to kind of go out and poke around. And I wanted to go to other small states with a decline and say, like, are you still into this? Is this still helpful? Is it still worth your time? And, you know, North Dakota has seen a decline and they seem fully invested in it. It draws back families year after year to come back and work. It brings in resources for their school. It pays teachers to work during the summer and it hires bus drivers and they, you know, can buy materials to support migrant students that then stay in that school and benefit students that are there year round. And then I went to Maine and they're still fully invested and doing a lot of creative things. They're leveraging that funding to really encourage students to to go to college. So it's kind of this next level, like, let's not just get you a high school diploma, but let's, you know, get you interested in a career and in college. And when I asked other state directors, you know, if there'd been a conversation about ending programs, really didn't hear that from any other states. How many kids are making use of this program now? Well, according to the Department of Education, it's about 300,000 that are enrolled right now. And, you know, there's definitely a range. You've got states that are much bigger, like California and Texas, that are dealing with thousands and thousands and thousands of students, close to 90,000 in California, for example. And then you have states that are serving much smaller populations like North Dakota or Maine, New Hampshire, Nevada, and that's just hundreds of students. You went to North Dakota and you met a student there named Angel. Uh, Tell us about him. Well, Angel is 14. He's going to turn 15 this fall. Um, He... Loves basketball. He loves school. What, what, what I got taught to do was you, you write it together. So you do He one. really is proud of you the fact that fraction. he's smart and that he likes you to learn. One, and he is four. the kid of, of a family that's many generations of farm workers. His own parents grew up working in the fields alongside their parents. Neither of them graduated from high school. His mom made it to sixth grade. You know, and she explained to me that my grandfather, he didn't, he just put my, like, my mom and, like, my, my aunts and my uncles, like, they would go work on fields, and he didn't give them the option to go to school. And she said that she really wishes that she had the opportunities because, you know, she she feels bad for me that we have to, like, go back and forth and stuff, so. 
I, that really makes me feel lucky that I have like the chance to like educate myself. But Angel is roaring to go to college. He's you know entering ninth grade this fall, and he's totally convinced that he's going to go to college, and it's something that he really wants to do. He has an older brother who also grew up migrating between Texas and North Dakota, who made it into college. So, you know, he sees that as a possibility and and he's going for it. But, you know, he still, despite the fact that he gets support from the migrant education program, faces some barriers to really being able to access school and, and all that comes along with it. He wants to do extracurricular activities um, like math and history competitions. And he wants to play on the basketball team. And because he moves back and forth and doesn't start and end school in the same place, he's excluded from a lot of that extra stuff. I told my mom, like, mom, like, I don't want to, I don't want to leave too early where I don't make the basketball team here or leave too late to where I don't make it over there. And I'm going to like get stuck and I'm not gonna be able to play at all. But, like, you know, it's, you know, whatever, you know, God does things for a reason. So if it does happen, but I, I hope it really does because I really want to play basketball really, really badly. The U.S. Department of Labor reports that at least 50 percent of the farm worker population in this country is made up of undocumented immigrants. Is it hard for kids of undocumented farm workers to get into this migrant education program? Does it put them at their, them or their families at risk of uh, being reported given the current political climate? You know, that's a really good question, and I don't I don't know the answer to it. I can tell you that there were states that I contacted that were hesitant to talk to me um, because they, you know, they know that there definitely is a portion of students that they're serving that are likely to be undocumented. Just, you know, given that number you said about the percentage of farm workers that are undocumented. And so... You know, they were like, oh, there's a lot of talk about migrant kids at the border, and we really don't want these things to be conflated. We'd rather just kind of fly under the radar and not have people know about the good work we're doing because we don't want to flag ourselves. Um, So I did hear that on the part of educators, this desire to sort of be protective and, and not let a ton of people know about this program. And it serves you know, not just farm workers and definitely not just Latinos. In Maine, there are white families that are served by this program, as well as Native American families. And that's, you know, true in other states as well. So when I ask educators if they feel like there's a hesitance or that folks are nervous about enrolling their kids in this program, the answer that I heard was no. Um, But, you know, who knows? And what it looks like this year could be different from from next year. Edward R. Murrow's landmark documentary, as you've said, Harvest of Shame, came out um, in the nineteen in nineteen sixty, I believe, right? Yeah. How have things changed for the kids of migrant farm workers uh, since then? Well, I think one thing that I can see in the lives of Angel and Juana Vasquez, you know, Angel's in North Dakota, Juana is working for a migrant education program in Maine. Um, they're growing up in an environment where they see farm workers um, breaking that cycle of poverty. So what Murrow described was, you know, there was no migrant student on record that had gone to college. And now Angel has grown up knowing a lot of farm worker kids that have gone on to college, including his own brother. And, you know, Juana is working for the migrant education program and she's in school herself working on her teaching degree. 
and she's taking migrant students to visit schools, and she's helping to facilitate that process of them getting into college. So that is a huge shift. But there are things about their lives that are not actually that different from what's described in Harvest of Shame. They are still some of the lowest annual earners in the country. They do some of the most dangerous work because of their contact with heavy machinery and toxic chemicals that are involved with pesticides and fertilizers. So, you know, that that's all still happening in the mix. But I think that there definitely is a different precedent set and a lot more hope for the students of farm workers that they, they can break that cycle of poverty and, and move on to another kind of work. I talked to uh, Tom Ferry, who's a farmer in Manville, North Dakota, and also a former school board member. I mean, that's kind of an interesting place for like an employer to be in, where you're hoping that the next generation doesn't do this. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess we all have to adapt. Uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah, they're looking for something better. Like, everybody is, you know. Tennessee Watson, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this episode. Did you know about the Migrant Education Program? Does the Harvest of Shame still seem as relevant today as it was nearly 60 years ago? Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast, or you can send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. Alex Baumhart and Chris Julin produced the podcast. Emily Hanford is our senior correspondent. This episode was mixed by Corey Schreppel. We partner with The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. <laughs>